If you were going to do an introduction to the show, what would it be? Like just something like "Hello and welcome to Cortex." I'm Mike Hurley, but I don't want to do that though. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's no good. I feel like it's 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 boring, but it's the easiest way to begin those shows because those shows don't require don't have the same level of editing, right? Mm-hmm. So I have to do something or I'll be talking forever and we'll never start, right? Be- right? And then I need to find a random start. But here we can just, something just happens and then that becomes the beginning of the episode. It's like, uh, what is it? When you're writing a book and medias rests or something, like you start in the middle is what they recommend for writing books. Don't actually start where you think you want to start. Start when the thing starts. But that seems impossible just to like to, to knowingly start in the middle. Like how do you know what the middle is if you haven't done the start? I do this sort of with my videos sometimes where I'm writing a video and then I realize the first four or five paragraphs, I can just ditch all of them. And then that, that's what I think they mean by starting in the middle. You often feel like you need to have a, a, when you're writing something, like you need to have more of an introduction than you really need to have as an introduction. Right. So just begin and then eventually the introduction will fall out of it. Right. You, you start writing and then... At some point when you are going over drafts, you realize, yes, the first third or quarter of this can just be cut with essentially no loss. And you realize, oh, right, my actual beginning was halfway through. So we are doing that with a podcast now. We were just talking, and it feels like now we have actually really started the show. Whereas we were just saying a whole bunch of nonsense before, and it wasn't really the start. So you might start the podcast right here. I don't know. But we're definitely in it now, no matter what's happening. It's, it's too late now. We're too far gone. There's nothing yeah. we can do about it. We're inside the podcast. Right. Yes. <laughs> you are still broadcasting from an uh, unknown location in North Carolina. Am I correct? Right. Yep. You are yep. traveling lots and lots this week. Mm-hmm. We, were, we're, we mentioned this in last week's episode, uh, which we recorded yesterday, which is very confusing mm-hmm. for me and my brain. Um that we would talk a little bit about about traveling. Are you still feeling jet lagged? Is that still an issue that you're going through right now? I'm better today than I was yesterday, but it takes me. It always takes me a little while to feel perfect, and I won't feel perfect before I have to step on a plane again. So, this is the summer of jet lag for me. <laughs> Are you going to another on the location? I am going from visiting my family in North Carolina to visiting my wife's family in Hawaii. So that's where that's where we're going next. I have to say, of all the places to have a wife come from, it's a pretty good one. Yes, it is a pretty good one. It's a, it's a much more interesting place than being from New York. Uh, a, a while back, my wife and I realized that when we were doing introductions, you know, when you meet a new couple or new people, one of the questions that often comes up is, where are you from? Especially if you are an expat living abroad. And... I told my wife that we always have to do the introduction that she mentions that I am from New York first and then say that she is from Hawaii second because the Hawaii part is way more interesting and people naturally want to ask questions about it. Yeah. And if you do it in the reverse order, there's an awkward moment where people want to jump over. Like if if instead you say, oh, my wife is from Hawaii and I am from New York, you can see that people want to go right to the Hawaii part of that. Hey, buddy, let's just forget about you. (laughs) Yes. And so if if you reverse that order, it's much more smooth socially. 
because people don't feel like, oh, let's let's skip the boring dude and let's talk to his interesting wife instead. So that's that's what we do now. So Mrs. Gray understands how people works a, a, a lot better than you do. I think. I think you, you, yeah. she's good for you in that regard. Yeah. So on your way to undisclosed location in North Carolina, you seemed to have some issues with traveling because many things kept moving around and I would hear from you every few hours or so uh, and you still wasn't in the location. (laughs) Yeah, it was, this was just one of those fun travel times where we got to the United States perfectly fine, but then I don't want to go into all of the details, but we had trouble getting from my favorite airport in the world, which is Washington Dulles Airport, to where we wanted to actually get in North Carolina because we got on an airplane and flew out. And North Carolina has huge thunderstorms, one of which our tiny plane just circled the perimeter of mm. in the air over North Carolina for a while, attempting mm. to land before <laughs> the pilot came on and t- telling us that we were running out of fuel Excellent. and that we had to go back to my favorite airport, Washington Dulles, because there was nowhere else to land. And so, yes, we arrived back at Washington Dulles at like oh. two in the morning or something. Uh, it's like this guy has something against you. Yeah, it, it was it was not a welcome piece of information to have been sitting in a, a turbulent jet uh, for a long period of time. And then, yeah, I have to go back to exactly where you came from. Uh, uh, attention everybody I hope you like this journey because you're going to have to do it again <laughs> yeah basically the, the trip from, from Washington to North Carolina we did three times out return and then out again the, the following day so it was it was not pleasant but uh, yeah so that that is why I had to keep sending you uh, messages the, the following day of trying to figure out like when are we actually going to get out here and uh, our our travel schedule is relatively tight this time, so it was having a bunch of knock-on effects for other things we wanted to do. And this is why I have caused you nothing but grief with the scheduling of these podcasts and when they are going to occur. And I have constantly made you change things and push them around. And as of now, the, rec- the episode that we recorded yesterday is actually going to go up on Saturday instead of the usual Friday. And then we're going to be skipping an episode in the future. And it, this is entirely my fault, but you know what, this is just the way things are. And we have this constant argument, but I am convinced that people really don't care about schedules as much as they think they care about schedules. So anyone who is familiar with my work is very much aware that I don't have a schedule for just about anything because I don't think they matter. But you do think they matter. So I know that I have caused you stress. I would just like to point out that where we currently are now in actual podcast recording time is four hours after we would usually put an episode of Cortex out to the world. And I have right. already had a few people ask me where the episode is. You know what? That's that's your punishment for having regular episodes, is that people have expectations. If you didn't give them expectations, you wouldn't you wouldn't get as much of this. Your logic for that is my punishment is is very flawed to me. I, I don't it's think not. that it's a punishment. Uh, what I did think about this, where usually I would be a bit more concerned, is that I am recording with you. So I expect that your audience doesn't necessarily think about it too too much. And it's just like, when it will come, it will come. Exactly. Um, But it was one of those situations where every couple of hours, uh, the schedule would change hugely because you just were were failing to arrive (laughs) at your destination. And one of these messages that you sent me was just uh, three words. Uh, What preceded it was the words show notes and then 
Travel decision fatigue. Oh yes, yes. Now, now that I am out of it, I'm not so sure that was a <laughs> a great topic. But in the middle of of being at an airport and being very tired, I thought, yes, travel decision fatigue is at least something to discuss on this episode. And uh, I mean, are you aware with the general concept of decision fatigue? How familiar are you with this? Mm, I can guess at it, but I wouldn't say I know enough of it. So why don't you explain that a little bit for me? It is what it sounds like that as you make more and more decisions, your brain gets tired. And that sounds really obvious, but it's also interesting that there's a bunch of research that is done in this field about actually being able to measure how quickly people's decision-making ability degrades, you know, at what rate, given how many decisions and, and all the rest of this. Uh, I was talking to some people uh, who were discussing how this is a big issue, for example, in the military, and that in helicopter and jet simulators, that decision fatigue and information overload are not just terms that white-collar workers use to describe how stressed they are. Like, they are measurable things that you can you can see the effect on a pilot. So you want to reduce the number of inputs that they have going into their system, and you want to reduce the number of decisions that they have to make at any point in time. And the interesting thing is that counterintuitively, the size of the decisions doesn't matter, that there's something about deciding at all, which is the hard part for your brain. And the bigness of the decision matters much, much less than the number of decisions. So if you have to make five tiny decisions, it's wearing down your brain uh, much more quickly than you might expect. So that's decision fatigue just in general. And all I could think of when we were traveling is how the very nature of traveling is a decision fatigue situation because almost everything that you're doing is new and novel. You have to figure out where you're going, what gate is it, which way to get to the gate, am I turning left, am I turning right, where am I getting the food from, what meal am I going to have at this restaurant that I never have had before, how much food am I going to bring on the airplane, am I going to stop at the duty-free, am I going to do this, am I going to do that. Once you're on the airplane, it's, oh, am I going to take a nap now, or am I going to stay up and wait for the food, right? Like, there's just this endless, endless array of things to decide, because the whole situation is novel. In a way that if you're doing other novel experiences, like once you're on vacation and you go for a hike, everything is new on your hike in the woods, but you're not making decisions. There's a path and you walk through it and you're just experiencing the new event. The culmination of all of this decision fatigue was at two in the morning or whenever it was when we were arrived back in Washington. I was really aware that my wife and I were at a decision fatigue point because they were giving us the options for flights for the next day. There were basically two things we had to figure out. Where are we going to spend the night? And what time flight are we going to aim for the next day? And it took my wife and I so much longer to decide those two relatively simple questions than it ever would. And I just think being aware of something like decision fatigue is 
is useful in those moments to, to know that like, okay, yes, my brain is more tired and to cut yourself more slack. And if you're with other people to cut them more slack when you're in, when you're in those situations. So yeah, we, uh, we definitely, we definitely had that. We got through it, but it was, it was just a moment of, of like, of like the, the gate agent behind the desk presenting us with the times. And we were just looking at each other in <laughs> silence, right? Like, huh? You know, 6 a.m. or noon or 3 p.m. or 6 p.m. Right? And under normal circumstances, I could make that decision in a second. But after so long in the airport and after so many other tiny decisions, that just be like your brain is just, we're done. We've packed it up, people. And it's going to take a really long time to come to a decision uh, in that in that situation. So that's what I think of as decision travel fatigue. Does that sound familiar to you, Mike? Have you experienced this? When I when I travel, I am I'm not a nervous traveler, mm-hmm. but I prepare for things and do things in such a way that people either believe that I am a nervous traveler or just think that I'm mad. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of those, some of the ways that this manifests itself is in the notion that I get very, very, very frustrated very, very quickly when traveling. Mm-hmm. My, my, te- mm-hmm. my, I have no tether anymore. Mm-hmm. It is so far gone. And I think that that is part of the fact that my mind is working on a million different little things. Like, what time do I need to wake up? What time do I need to leave the house? Do I have my passport? What time do I get on the train? Do I have my passport? Like these these right, things yes. just go over and over and over again. And I can I can definitely see how it gets to a certain point like in, in you, you get to the um like the food court in the airport or whatever. And it's like, well, I just don't even know how to choose food anymore. Right. Which is why I very much, one of the ways that I try and limit this kind of thing is to do my level best to keep as many things the same as possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, like, I I try my very best when I go overseas to fly with British Airways uh, because mm-hmm. that typically means that I will fly from Terminal 5 at Heathrow, which means I can then go to the restaurant that I like to eat at. You know, and I like to just know that there are certain things that I'm going to be able to do which are exactly the same. So it limits the amount of stress that, that I get, I put myself through. That is definitely the recommended strategy. My additional problem, which I, I don't think I mentioned on this podcast, is that I normally am flying standby. And so so that means I don't have a designated ticket i'm just getting on the airplane if there are seats available but this really contributes to decision fatigue because there are often hour by hour decisions that need to be made about which planes is standby going to be attempted for and having to weigh different scenarios of what is the likelihood of this flight filling up versus that flight filling up how does that affect the connection that you're trying to hit and so I, yes, I, uh, if I was not flying standby, I would do the same thing as you, which is to try and regularize the travel. But it's, I am in a situation where the, the travel is not regular at all. It's always, it's always different times. It's, it's always different flights and different connections. And it does, uh, it does not help. It does not help. There is no world in which I could fly the way you fly. Mm-hmm. Just none. I had to fly yeah. standby once because. Uh, I was I missed the connection because uh, I had to, my my first plane was delayed, and I was mm-hmm. in the airport for maybe about twelve hours. And 
it got to the point where I was like, if I don't get on this next plane, send me home. Like I was in America. I was like, I just <laughs> want to go home. I'm done. <laughs> I've been here for 12 hours. I'm in Philadelphia airport. I don't even know what's going on anymore. If they can't get on this next plane, they're like, oh, we'll, we'll try and put you on one again tomorrow morning. I'm like, nope, I just want to go to London. <laughs> Forget mm-hmm. it. <laughs> uh, so I, I don't know how you do it. I really don't. And plus, it's interesting to me that you choose to fly this way because of everything that I know about you. Just feels like this is not something that you would want to do. It's very interesting to me that you do that you make that choice. I think I'm better at this than it would be expected given everything that you know about me because since my mom is a flight attendant and uh this is how we have always traveled ever since I was a kid. Right. I've always flown standby. It has been very rare to have a designated ticket. So my experience with what airports are like, I, I don't have too much of a frame of reference of what it's like to have a normal ticket. That's why I think I'm able to to do this. Whereas if I had flown with regular tickets for most of my life and then now in my adult life there was this, oh, you can fly standby thing, I, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't do it. I would give up a lot of the benefits of standby flight for the regularity and the predictability of regular tickets but that's not the experience that I've, i had as a kid it was always just we're going to the airport and maybe we're getting on a plane and maybe we're just going back home at the end of the day and that's just how uh that's just how air travel works from my perspective but yeah i'm um there are advantages but it is reducing decisions and cognitive load on a stressful day is definitely definitely not one of them and i'm assuming so. then that there is some sort of economical like seating class benefit to being on standby. Yeah, the basic benefits are one, it is super cheap, and two, if you do the planning correctly, you can end up in business or first class. So that that is the big advantage, especially on longer flights. If you can if you can figure it out right, you can end up in a business class or a first class seat and pay the you know the even less sometimes than what an economy seat would have costed on the nah. same flight. So that that's that's the advantage, yeah. I'm assuming that this is when checklists go into real overdrive. (laughs) Well, yes and no. I have a big travel packing checklist. Is this an OmniFocus? Yes, this is an OmniFocus. But interestingly, as, uh, as I have been married over the years, my wife and I have developed a a bit of, um, a bit of a division of labor for what's going to happen when we're traveling. So we used to be each of us, each of us would take care of our own things entirely, but now we have more like domains of responsibility. And I think this works out really well for each of us because it's the same thing of eliminating one thing that the other person has to think about. And so broadly speaking, I'm in charge of a lot of the logistics for the day. So any train tickets, the plane reservations, all of that stuff I'm setting up and and dealing with. And then I'm also in charge of packing electronics and a few other things. And then my wife is largely in charge of like clothing and toiletry stuff for the bags. So that this is, this has just happened over time that we've settled into these roles. And it's definitely better than when I used to try to pack entirely for like each of us trying to pack on our own for going on a trip because then there's a lot of overlap did you bring your toothbrush i brought my toothbrush and and 
that would just that would just be a little bit of crazy making. So I really just have a, a checklist which is related to tickets and electronic stuff, and I run through that. But it's not a complete like I couldn't hand that checklist to another person and they would feel like, oh, I'm fully ready for a trip because it is missing the sections that my wife does. They would only be ready for a trip with your wife, which is exactly unlikely. To exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I don't. I, I haven't actually looked at hers, but I know my wife uses uh, Clear, and she has a, a travel packing checklist that she runs through. That um, I don't know exactly how it works in Clear, but I think she can reactivate an old list, and so she just reactivates the old one and goes through it and adds things every time. So we each have our own separate list that we're running through the the day before and the day of travel. I use Clear for my my travel checklist, and this was a tip that came from my girlfriend. Because I would like maybe try and do something the day before, or just like run through things. And she was, and she has a, a list in clear, which is her packing list that just gets added to over time. So all she does is yeah, she has the yeah. list, and she just marks everything off and doesn't delete the list, and then just hmm. marks everything as new again every time she travels. And it ends up being a really smart system because that thing you forgot, <laughs> you add it to the list, then you don't forget it again. And it, and it's that's quite, exactly right. And I like it. And then I have I have one list, but it serves both for European and American travel. It's like I have both EU plug adapter and US plug adapter as a thing in that list, and I just activate the ones that are necessary for that trip. And then I just exactly, check them off. It's exactly. Great. It's a great system, yeah. really. And Clear is a really, really great app for packing stuff because you also get the satisfaction of the little sounds every time you check one off. And, and yes. like, I'm so clever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do have to say one area where Clear just tromps OmniFocus is in the sounds and the funness of it. Yeah. Where it does, Clear makes it just delightful to tick off items. And you do feel like, oh, look at me. I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm so good. <laughs> I'm just this great little person ticking off these things. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Right. And it makes little happy sounds as, as you go. So yeah, I I, uh, I do recommend Clear to some people to use if they're looking for something that is is simpler. But it is funny when we are packing, I hear the little bloop 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 sounds <laughs> as my wife is ticking <laughs> off items, you know, in the other room as she's as she's getting stuff ready. But yeah, what you said is the same thing that I do, and I recommend for these kinds of checklists is you you over put things on the checklist. You you uh, like any travel scenario that you might have, you have something on that checklist, and then you can just delete it or get rid of it or just tick it off if it isn't relevant to what you're doing. I have items on that checklist which are about getting any money that I have for the place that I'm going. Now, that's not always relevant if I'm traveling within the UK, but I, I it's crazy to have separate checklists for travel within the UK, travel outside of the UK. It's, it's easy enough to just blow past those little items if they aren't relevant at the time. Do you have any kind of specific packing things that you do? I know that there are people that love to be able to put everything in one bag or anything like that. Do you have different bags for these these kinds of trips to the regular go bags that you have? Or are they, uh, are they actually the same bags because they're prepared for everything? Big recommendation for traveling is to get a suitcase that is an upright with four wheels on it. Yeah, I have a two-wheel one, and it makes me sad every time. I mean, it's like living in the Stone Age, Mike, using a, a suitcase with two <laughs> wheels on it. Because if you have a suitcase with four wheels that also has the handle that extends upward, you have become like a nimble mountain goat 
in the airport because you can maneuver that around little spaces so well and the footprint of space that you are taking up is dramatically reduced. So you can have it right, you know, right by your side like a well-heeled dog and just move around people and get around crowds. The four-wheel suitcase is a huge, huge improvement for traveling. Uh, so my um, my wife researched a bunch of, of four-wheel suitcases and eventually settled on on one. And, and we each have, we're just total dorks, we have matching suitcases just in different colors. So we each have the same four-wheel suitcase. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we, we go through the airport like that. And that's a, that's a big deal. But I bring my regular backpack with me, but it's just, it's inside the suitcase because then when I'm, say like I'm in North Carolina now, I still use my backpack the way that I do when I'm in London. As in, I mean, just the other morning, I packed up my usual work stuff in the backpack. I had my iPad and I went out to a local cafe and I was clearing email like we discussed on the last episode. So I do want that with me. I still have that, but I just throw it into the bag and then it becomes my little more, my mobile uh, bag when I'm just wherever I happen to be. But you must have something you take on the plane, though, surely. Yeah, the, the four wheel, the little four wheel suitcase is what I am taking on the plane. Oh, that, that is my, oh you don't my check anything. Carry on bag. Uh, I do have a bigger version of that four wheel that if we need to check bags, I do check bags. When I was uh, when I was a younger single man, I never checked anything. Uh, <laughs> I was just not going to check a bag, partly because this can cause extra problems if you're going standby. So there was a big advantage in not having to check yep. a bag. And partly because I just hated packing. And so I thought, oh, instead of packing two bags, I'll just pack one bag. And also partly because I was always able to get away with it because the vast majority of time when I was traveling as a younger man, I was coming from London back to visit my parents at the start. Like the parent, my parents were the starting point of wherever I was going. And so I just left a redundant wardrobe and redundant everything at my parents' house. So I didn't need to pack all of my clothes because I just had a whole other set of clothes at my parents' house. So that's that's how I used to travel. Now that I'm a, I'm a grown person and I'm going around with my wife, we do check bags. But I bring a small four-wheel one onto the plane. That, that's what I'm bringing there with me. All right, so nothing. You you have one case though, right? You, you're not bringing two suitcases to the airport. There's two suitcases to the airport, one that is getting checked, one that is going on the plane. Okay. The one that is going on the plane also has within it my backpack. Right, I see. So you're taking out stuff that usually goes in the backpack and putting it in the small little wheelie case. That's exactly that right. That's exactly right. What does Gray do on a plane? Do you slip into like a shutdown period or... You know, is there is there activities occurring? Do you watch movies? Do you uh, consume you like units of music utility? I am uh, I'm laughing because I always I always end up having to re-explain to my wife what I do on a plane because she forgets the particularness of what I want to do on a on a plane, and I have this thing that I think of as the cognitive ramp down on a flight, so. I'm very often taking long flights. I'm going from London to the US or, or back. This isn't the same for a, a brief flight. But if you're on a flight that's at least six hours, maybe a 12-hour flight, I have a list of things that I want to do, and I do them in the order of the cognitive difficulty of the task. So something like watching a movie, 
This is when my wife is on the plane. She wants to start out by watching a movie. But I always feel that, no, we cannot start out watching a movie. Or at least I'm not going to start out watching a movie. Because watching a movie is a cognitively easy thing to do. You just sit there and you absorb the movie. It doesn't require any effort on your part. If you're going to do stuff, you have to start out with the things that are more difficult for you to do. So something like reading a book is more cognitively difficult than watching a movie. So if you have a book with you and you have movies you want to watch, you have to read the book first. And then when you're tired of reading the book, then you can move on to the movie. And so depending on what I have with me to do, I want to do the harder stuff first. And on this last flight... I had uh, I had loaded up some stuff that was related to one of my secret projects and it involved learning a new skill. And so on the airplane, the very first thing that I did was, what as I said, okay, I'm going to go through this book and these lessons that I have for myself and I'm going to learn this new skill as the first thing that I do on the airplane because that is the most cognitively demanding thing. Was it tailoring? <laughs> yeah, I was tailoring. That's exactly <laughs> right. How'd you guess? I just, I can tell these things, you know. Yeah. So when when I grew tired of that, then I moved on to reading a book. And then from there, you move on to watching TV or watching a movie. So that's the way I always want to arrange stuff, because you can't go from watching your movies to then, oh, I'm going to teach myself this new skill. You're just going to be too tired at the end of the at the end of the airplane. You're just going to be restless and exhausted and not able to actually focus on something like that. So this is always how I arrange things. What do I have with me? And then do them in reverse order for cognitive difficulty that is an interesting system it is the only system this episode of cortex is brought to you by harvest if you're a freelancer or part of a team and you have client work then you're going to know how tricky and annoying it can be to both track your time and send out the invoices that you need so you can get paid well this is where harvest can help you. Harvest lets you track exactly how much time you're spending on your projects, and you can do this from the web, from your phone, your computer, or even your watch. They have great apps for so many platforms that can help you get this done. Harvest's great time tracking is available for you no matter where you get your work done, making sure that you'll never lose track of that time or money. And when it comes time to bill your clients, Harvest lets you take those tracked hours and easily create and send beautiful invoices. They look great. They can be customized of your own company logo to make sure that everything looks and feels professional. Once you send that invoice out, you want to get paid as quickly as possible and Harvest makes that easy. They integrate with PayPal and Stripe so you can accept online payment on those invoices and get paid faster. They also feature multi-currency support in case you're billing overseas and also have automated invoices in case you need to send the same thing over and over again. Harvest have really built the full package for people that need to track time and get paid. They do this with great looking apps that are a pleasure to use by giving you powerful reporting tools to help you keep up to date with what's going on in your business and by helping you to go paperless with great expenses tracking. I'm super impressed with what they offer and I think that you will be too. To get started with Harvest right now, go to getharvest.com, that's G-E-T-H-A-R-V-E-S-T dot com and create an account. The first month is free, but you can save yourself 50% off the second month by entering the coupon code Cortex at checkout. Thank you so much to Harvest for helping support this week's episode. So in the spirit of this being a very irregular schedule that we have here, um, we Mm. decided to uh, incorporate and push the Ask Grey questions to their very maximum uh, and uh, compile a long list of things to work through today. 
So I'm going to ask you some questions today that have come via the audience of this show. Right, because we don't we don't have any follow up. The, the next show isn't even out. This feels like it is an episode out of time. So that's why we're doing something a bit different. This episode could actually exist anywhere within the run. You could just play it exactly. wherever and it wouldn't even matter. Uh, the first question comes from John. And John would like to know, uh, what beverage does Gray typically consume at the cafes in where he works? <laughs> I mean, is that, a, is that really a question? It's coffee. Of course it's coffee. I drink a lot of coffee. Do you tend to go to just chains or do you go to like fancy independent coffee shops in London? It's mostly chains because I like things consistent. Right. And I haven't found any fancy independent places that are also places that you can sit down and stay and work comfortably for reasonable periods of time. So that's why I tend to just go to chains. Me and you are going to go on a little tour when you get home. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because there's like just so many other great coffee houses that do way better coffee. Um, yeah, but you're just going to take me to these hipster places where you have to sit on a tiny stool in the corner and stroke your mustache. Like, that's that's the kind of coffee place you're going to take me to. You don't have to stroke your mustache. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, mustache is preferred. <laughs> is that's that... what the sign on the door would say <laughs> if you're coffee places. <laughs> tiny stool optional. Um, yeah. So do you just drink, like, filter coffee in Starbucks? My current drink in uh, the various places that I go is to get a filter coffee and to get it. Now, I always have to find the magic words at the various place for what I'm going to say next. But at Starbucks in the UK, I have to ask for pouring cream, I have learned is the magic word. But if I'm at a place like um, at some of the other places, I'll have to say something like single cream seems to be the magic word for what it is that I want. But there seems to be some confusion about this in England, but I don't want milk in my coffee. I want cream in my coffee. Yeah, we typically but don't don't go the cream option. I have found to my horror that at Starbucks, if I just say that I want a filter coffee with cream, <laughs> if there are if there are no follow up questions from the barista, I get a filter coffee with whipped cream on top. Who in the world wants this? Why would you think this is a reasonable drink? But it has happened on more than one occasion. That, is that so I get a, a filter coffee with whipped cream on top. Yeah. Uh, you know, the problem with that is, is that is internal jargon gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Because Starbucks call it cream, right? Like if, if you get yes. like a Frappuccino, they say, would you like cream on top? So that is right. like, they're just like, oh, well, he's obviously referring to the cream that we talk about. That's very weird. But, you know, we'll do it anyway. Oh, that's incredible. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine your horror when you take a sip. Like, what? what is this? <laughs> yes. But for some reason, the it must be something with the training of the baristas. But at Starbucks, it has to be pouring cream. If I say single cream at Starbucks, it's always a big, like, what do you want? What is the thing that you're after? You want a single serving of whipped cream? It's like, no, it's not. But single cream is the is the much better word at almost everywhere else. So yeah. this is this is this is my drink. And my big problem, of course, is that this is slightly unusual asking for pouring cream. So it always makes me be the guy who's like standing out online. I don't just have a straightforward order. And then I hate that because then they get to know you faster at Starbucks, which is a whole other problem that I really hate. Oh, it's Mr. Single Cream. It's not very incognito, Gray. You should bring your own cream. I have thought about that. I I figured that that you had. (laughs) (laughs) You should bring your own coffee as well. Just sit outside. (laughs) Maybe I'll do that next time. But yeah, so... 
Coffee. Lots of it. That's what I drink. So another John uh, asks, there's a lot, John's seem to like asking you about beverages uh, because John would uh-huh. like to know, do you have other beverages that you like to consume when uh, working after breakfast time or when you're relaxing or socializing? I like coffee for all those occasions. Yeah. Relaxing, socializing, breakfast, lunch, sometimes after dinner. I like coffee. It's good. It works a lot. Whenever we meet for lunch, I mm-hmm. consume more caffeine than I tend to with over like a four-day period. Oh, yeah? Are you just being polite with all the coffee that you drink when you're with me? No, because I like it, but I try not to do it. Right? Because this is my problem. Mm-hmm. I really love coffee. Uh, but mm-hmm. I have one a day in the morning, except on special days, like sometimes what I refer to as two coffee Tuesday, because I have to stay up really late on Tuesdays. Wow, two whole coffees. Well, this is the thing, because I like to try and limit myself. So when I have another one, it really makes an effect. And plus, the other yeah, thing is, yeah. if if I let myself, I would be drinking more coffee than water, mm-hmm. which, you know, I would just consume it constantly. So I try and limit the amount that I have. But whenever we see each other, I have maybe like three or four lattes, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. what basically if anybody talks to me, I mean, you see this. I don't know if you even notice it, but you maybe you'll notice it now more now that we talk more often. Uh, I tend to end up talking about a thousand miles an hour when, when mm-hmm. we're done for the day. So, yeah, you talk faster in person than on the podcast. Because I'm drinking an incredible amount of coffee. That's why. Because <laughs> I've already had one before I come and meet you. So the this, this first sip of the first coffee is, is already more than normal. Um, mm-hmm. And then that can, that makes me like twist your arm into starting projects. So mm-hmm. that's how yeah. that happens. And then here we are. Adam has asked a question that I'm very intrigued to find out your answer to. If mm-hmm. you won millions of pounds on the lottery... Would you still make videos or would you maybe learn to program or something different that would fulfill you? What would you do? I mean, here's the thing. Our very first episode of this little run was called I Don't Really Like Work. And uh, I think it's pretty clear that I, I think that a lot of the um, a lot of the things that people say about work, particularly in school environments where I'm, I'm familiar with people giving career advice, is just is just total nonsense where people talk about loving your job right and finding work that you really love and i think there are precious precious few people who are in positions where they wake up in the morning and feel like wow i really love my job and the thing that i usually tell people when they ask like oh do you really love your job it must be awesome is it's hard for me to imagine work that is better suited to my personality than the work that I currently do. So figuring out how something works and then making a video explaining about it, I can't imagine that there's something that would that would just naturally fit with the way that I want to work than that. But it's to me, it's still it's still work. It's still something that I, I have to do. And it's still something that I feel pressure that, oh, I have to make a certain number of videos and and my livelihood depends on all of this, which is a long way of saying that if I won enough money that I never had to work ever again, I would not keep making the same number of things that I currently make. I would make fewer things. But the flip side of this is that I have had periods in my life because I was a bum who didn't have any 
financial requirements. Like I just was, you know, living very low where I didn't really have to work. I had, I've had stretches of time like that where it's like, oh, I, you know, I don't really have to work at all. And that's too little. Just if you don't have, or I shouldn't say you, but I'm, I'm saying for me personally, if I don't have anything to do, that is depressing. That's not a good situation to be in. And that then just makes me unhappy. So I would work less if I didn't have to work, but the amount of, of things that I would do would not be zero because zero would just be depressing and life would just feel totally aimless. So I would still make videos I would still make podcasts, but I might not make them as frequently as I currently do if I didn't have to work. So now, what about you, Mike? Because I I don't have a good sense of the shape of your mind in many ways yet. Hmm. So I'm not quite sure how you would answer this question. I have a feeling you might have a similar answer to me, but I may be very wrong about that. So what about you? You win enough money that you could buy an apartment in the Shard, plus more. What does your life look like from this point on? So it overlaps with you in some ways, but it is different. So my feeling is I I also agree that the love what you do thing is it, it holds some idealistic merit, but on the whole is is very, very difficult to achieve. So mm-hmm. I currently do the job that is the only job in the world that I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I have worked for five years tirelessly to get to this point, and now I have achieved it. But what happens when something like this becomes your job is there is the part of it that you love, which is this bit. So I'm doing this bit. But there are parts of it that I don't love as well that come along with it. So I do the job that I love, but a lot. What comes along with that is the baggage of the things that I don't want to do, like bookkeeping, accounting, mm-hmm. dealing with my accountant for my end of year tax return, like all of the random, like boring, not fun things that you have to do when it comes to running a business. So, mm-hmm. if I was to win that amount of money, I maybe would just make a little bit less, or maybe my schedules would go a little bit awry. Um, because mm-hmm. I want to go see the world a little bit or something. But on mm-hmm. the whole, I would then use that money to hire people and just pay more people to do more of the things that I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. I actually don't... Th- I can't imagine a world now uh, in which I don't do this because I really love making this stuff um, and I really, really love hearing from people. And knowing that people enjoy what I make, like the the thrill that I get out of that, um, I couldn't I couldn't trade that in for anything now. You like having an audience, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> Don't you? This may sound strange, but if I if I could trade my current work for something that was equivalent in every way. So I get to continue talking to people who are as interesting as the people that I currently talk to, and I get to earn the same amount of money that I currently earn, and I get to work the same number of hours that I currently work. It's a different job, but all of the benefits are there, except that I am no longer a public figure in any way. I would make that trade 
without a doubt. Like I, I love the Reddit stuff. Like that's really fun, and and I like that. But I, I always view any level of being a public figure as a cost that I have to incur to do other stuff. I, I don't like it. So, if I could trade my job for an equally satisfying job where I was not in the public eye at all, I would do it. I think you are, me and you are built differently in this way. You are built differently to everybody else that I work with in that Mm -hmm. you are synonymous Mm -hmm. and you are very clearly a private person who Mm -hmm. has stumbled upon a very large audience of people, which is a very, very peculiar mix. Yeah. I was not aiming for this, no. (laughs) What were you aiming for then? I... I, mm, I was always running a bunch of side projects when I was teaching and I was just aiming for independence. That's that's what I was aiming for, the ability to work for myself so that I was in control of my own life. And it just so happens that the first project that hit successfully enough that I was able to leave teaching and work for my own was also a project that just happened to be one that depends on having an audience of people. But no, it was, it was not on purpose. It was incidental. And this kind of career was so far out of my mind that it took a long time for me to even realize, oh, you're making videos on the side that lots of people are watching and maybe this can turn into a into a career. Uh, and I've, I've gone back through some of my old emails and some of my old notes from around that time because, of course, you can't trust your memory and just seen like, how dim-witted I was about the thing that is obviously being the successful thing and doubling down on that. It took me a long time to realize it because... Yeah, this this kind of career just wasn't wasn't in my mind. I was thinking more along the lines of, okay, what kind of services can I sell to people or what kind of products can I make that people might want to buy? I was not thinking about how can I entertain a large enough audience so that I can support myself. It wasn't right. it wasn't on my mind at all. Robbie would like to know, what is it like in a day where Gray gets sick? What do you do? Do you just like everything shuts off? And you watch movies and play games. Like, what happens when you're unwell? Because, again, this is something else, maybe even more than holidays, that changes massively when you're self-employed. Yeah, yeah. This is another case where we're going to have something that's very different because largely I try to arrange my working life so that I don't have schedules, I don't have things that absolutely need to get hit by a particular day. Like, I'm often aiming for a video to be released on or by a date, but almost always that can get moved around. There's a little bit of flexibility in there. It isn't It isn't often a real requirement that it happens on, a, on an exact time. So a sick day for me when, I, when I'm feeling like I just can't do any work is probably way less stress than it is for you because I can take a day off and just say, all right, I'm going to lay on this couch being a big snotty slug of illness doing nothing. (laughs) And that means there's going to be a knock-on effect of pushing back podcasts or pushing back videos. But 
it doesn't necessarily have a huge impact because but like again that's that's on purpose like i don't like schedules it's one of the reasons why this cortex every week thing is really irritating me because like oh man we just did one of these what do you mean i have to do it again it's like it's happening so frequently i'm not used to this at all um so yeah that's why for me a, a, a sick day is a relatively easy thing to do it's it's usually not not too stressful and depending on how sick i am most of the time i will just end up just putting something on tv like trying to find a tv series where i can say all right is there a season of something i can just watch all day until i slip into unconsciousness at the end of the day that's that's what i'll do if i'm not if i'm not feeling well but what do you do my thing is i have to be really unwell for something to change like if i'm Mm -hmm. just not feeling great then what i might do is like take the day off from everything except what has to happen so if something Mm -hmm. is scheduled then i will do my level best to make it Um, but i might not do any of the other tasks on that day like for example one day this week uh, i didn't sleep the night before very well at all and i just felt crap like just really Mm. crap like i'd slept maybe like four or five hours which sometimes i do maybe even less than that and and i'm okay but i woke up and just felt like i had not slept at all like i had the feeling of when i come home from a big flight overseas right that was how i felt and i was like Mm. i am going to sit here and play batman on my playstation all day and that was what i did (laughs) And so I can, you know, and I just moved some tasks around and there were a couple of things I had to do that day that I did, but the majority of my day was just playing PlayStation. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'm, su- if I get super, super ill, then I just have to have someone stand in for me. But luckily that has not happened yet. So if you were super sick, I'd be talking to somebody else right now. I don't like that at all. No, you wouldn't. I would have to find okay. something else for you because I know you wouldn't accept that, but everybody else would, would probably be okay with it. Um, plus, I don't think I, I don't think I would feel okay letting anybody else in this scenario. Oh, so what you're saying is you're you're better than all of the other people who could potentially fill this role? Is that what you're no, saying? No, I'm just worried of what you might do to them. Oh, you're worried about my reaction. Okay, that's yeah. different. That's uh, maybe you'd like systematically break them down or something. And I would, I would do, I would do nothing. I would do nothing except be bad at conversation, which is my skill. Udsav has asked, what advice would you and Gray give your university selves with regards to productivity and work ethic? Okay, you have to go first on this one. I can't help Udsav at all because I didn't go to university. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, I finished school at the age of 18 after completing sixth form college. Uh, was going to take a break from studying because I applied for a bunch of universities, got into them, and then decided I didn't want to do English literature anymore uh, and that I wanted to do media. And Mm -hmm. only one university would accept me to change my course, and it was a university in London, and I didn't want to go to university and live at home. Mm -hmm. So I decided to take a year off. Uh, I got a job. And then stay in, stayed employed at that company for eight years <laughs> because I got used to the money. <laughs> so depending on what you want to be productive with, Woodsurf, I can't help you. <laughs> that's, a good, that's good. You got used to the money. Once again, this is the purpose of the money is for the company to make you stay. Here, yep. have some money. Why don't you stay? How kind of you. <laughs> 
if I if I'm trying to answer this question, I also I also have difficulty with this because some of the videos that I make feel like I am trying to address something to my past self, like that's the audience whose mind I'm trying to convince is, is an earlier version of me who didn't believe a thing and maybe if he stumbles across this video it would change his mind. But when I think back to my university self, I, I just don't know if there's much about that person's mind I would be able to change because I was doing fine at university. I mean, some of the classes were harder than others, but there wasn't like some big problem I was having. And so the perspective of past me was everything's going great. <laughs> you know, it's like, I like my classes, I'm doing fine in them. And so while current me might wish that he could convince past me to work harder or to learn how to do some things, I don't think past me would be receptive to that at all. I don't think I could convince past me to change his productivity or his or his work ethic. The only concrete piece of advice that I will give, which is something that I learned from one of my professors in university, was how to study for a test. And this piece of advice, I gave this to uh, the students that I taught and those who followed it. it. It went very well. But if you are preparing for a test in something like physics or math or anything where you can get your hands on old versions of the tests and you can also know for sure that you're answering them correctly because you have the answer keys or because it's physics and there's actual answers unlike English where you know you're just making up stuff and a teacher is subjectively grading on you preparing for an English test I guess the answer to that is just try to know the mind of your teacher and, and work towards that. And just keep practicing and just keep writing and just keep doing it over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. You go through you go through the old tests and you do them over and over again. But more importantly, you keep doing one of the old tests until you score perfectly on it. Don't don't move on to any additional old tests that you have. Do one of them until you get a perfect score. And the purpose of this is not what you're thinking. It's not that, oh, now I finally got all of it right. The purpose of this is actually to drill into your mind the easier parts to make them second nature so that you just very quickly know how to do the simple things and kind of going to our our cognitive load discussion before, it, it helps you when you're facing a difficult question that the the easy stuff you don't even have to think about. It's not a burden on your mind. You just know it because you've done it 20, 30, 40, 50 times. So that's my advice for preparing for a test. So you end up with some points in the bag, basically. Exactly. It's just stuff you know. It's not even stuff that you have to remember. Yes, it's it's that is definitely what happened when I prepared for tests that way. Particularly with math and physics, you just go, oh, right, I can just look at this easy problem, you know, for page one and two on a 10-page exam, and I feel like I haven't even started thinking until page four because the beginning pages, you just, I just know this. I just know it because I've done it so many times. I, I don't think there is a better way to study for a test than that. I, I really think that's the best thing you can possibly do. Toby would like to know which RSS reader do you use? I would like to add to Toby's question and ask, do you even use RSS? It's funny, it's funny this question comes up now because literally just yesterday I canceled my subscription to an RSS syncing service 
because I realized that even though I think I use RSS, I haven't actually used it in any meaningful way in probably a year or so. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I used to be really heavy, heavy into RSS. And when I, the app that I was using was Reader with two E's, which is unhelpful. The worst name. But, <laughs> yes, yeah, the, the worst, worst name ever. It's the worst name. Reader, especially when Google Reader existed, because that was yes. what people called Google Reader. They called it Reader. Oh, right. the worst. Right. I, I like Reader in no small part because it has the uh, dark mode viewing which is very easy on my eyes that that's what i used but uh yeah when it came time to renew my subscription to my rss syncing service i I just realized oh i just don't really use this i still have it and i think i do but i don't so i just canceled it and i don't i'm just admitting to myself that i don't use rss i used to the thing that i do now is i actually use if this then that to send a limited number of websites that I want to follow straight to Instapaper. So Instapaper is sort of an RSS reader now, but the the nature of Instapaper versus a proper RSS reader forces me to limit the number of things that I actually want to get sent to Instapaper. The other limitation which is useful is it makes me think about who is writing stuff that is actually long enough and interesting enough that I want to read it as opposed to just, I mean, I used to have, I don't know, a hundred, 200 websites that I was Mm -hmm. theoretically following in my RSS reader, but lots of those were just very short pieces of writing or they were link aggregators in some way. And, and it's one of these ways where I realized I don't really care. Like I think I care, but I don't. And so I have a much, much smaller number of people who write something that I think is substantial that I want to go to Instapaper and when I'm looking for something to read, I open up Instapaper and go through that. So that's that's what I do now. And that has dramatically reduced the number of, of things that I follow. I was a big user of RSS and then just for some reason just stopped checking it, I think, because I just ran out of the time to do that as well every single day. So then... Mm-hmm. A few months ago, I took my maybe 200 subscriptions or something silly like that down to about 15 or 20 to see if Mm -hmm. I would then check it. I wasn't checking Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So, like, for me, my feeling is I will find it on Twitter if it's good. Mm -hmm. And I just -hmm. just signed up for an app called Nuzzle. It's a little service. What it does, you, you plug your Twitter account into it and it surfaces what lots of people are linking to on Twitter that you follow. Mm-hmm. So it kind of what it does is it basically delivers your own personal zeitgeist. So you just mm-hmm. find out what is happening in your circle or of the people that you're interested in, what are they talking about? Um, and I haven't, I haven't used it enough yet to know if this is something that I'm interested in. But what I do know is there have been a few things in Nuzzle that I have come across and read or watched or whatever that I would have missed otherwise. So I think that there might be some utility in there, but I'm just trying to get used to it because it it sends notifications and sometimes that can be annoying. So I'm trying to work out if one, I want the notifications and you can tweak what it will notify you about. Um, and then two, and then I, if I'm not going to get notified about things, am I ever going to go in there and look at it? Um, mm-hmm. So I'm still playing around with it, but it is an interesting thing. But for me, it's just, if it's really going to be that important, 
I will find out apparently on Twitter. And I need to stay fairly well informed because I have a bunch of shows that are quite topical and news based, and I never feel like I don't know what's happening. So, yeah, you have much more reason to stay up to date with lots of things than I do. So you yeah. need something to to do that for you. And it sounds like you have found something that that helps filter out yep. the important stuff. Effectively, just following people that I'm interested in that have something to say and then following the official accounts of a couple of blogs and sites that I like to read, Mm -hmm. I pretty much just find everything I need on Twitter that way. Mm -hmm. It Mm -hmm. it works out. But yeah, RSS for me is just not a thing that I use anymore. Uh, Brookfield would like to know, why do we both use Tweetbot and not the official Twitter app? I don't exactly know why. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> I, I just, every time I use the official Twitter app, I have both of them on my uh, iPad. I just, something about the official Twitter app just repels me. I don't like the way it it displays too much information or and it sometimes also just feels like the information density is too low. I can't put my finger on what it is, but there's something about it that I don't like. So I still I still use the very, very old now looking Tweetbot on my iPad. Oh, it's a sorry state of affairs. It's just horrific. It's a sorry state of affairs because of, first, how old that is. And second, that there aren't better alternatives. Nope. Or at least alternatives that I like better. I mean, there's... Um, Twitterific. What's the other? Yeah, Twitterific. Thank you. Th- that is the only other contender in this space. And something about Twitterific feels very similar to the Twitter app to me, where it's like, I I don't like these for the same reason. There's just something about the way they're presenting tweets I don't like. So, but, but you know, this is all Twitter's fault. There should be very many different Twitter clients that you can try and that you can like, but there are not. It is, yeah, it's just a, it's a sad withering field for Twitter apps. Tweetbot gives me a few features that Twitter's official apps don't do and will probably never do. Uh, one of mm. them is syncing my timeline position. Mm, yeah, yeah. So if I'm looking at Twitter on my iPhone and then open Twitter on my Mac, uh, my Mac will scroll to where I was last looking on my iPhone. And that mm-hmm. is very much against like Twitter's business model because they always want you to know what's happening right now, you know, because that helps them and their ads are always at the top and stuff like that. Um, the ads are annoying, uh, just because of the quality of stuff that's in there. Um, mm-hmm. They're not very tailored to me, I don't think, um, or any tailoring that they're doing, I don't think does a good job because I never look at the ads on Twitter's app because I, I check it every now and then just to see what it's like. And the ads that it shows me are never relevant to me. But mm-hmm. that, And I don't feel that way about a lot of web advertising because um, a lot of the time I'm going around the web and there's stuff happening that's like, okay, there's some, I can see why you're thinking that, or yes, I am interested in that. But Twitter stuff, it's just like, play Game of War. It's like, I don't even want to and or know what that is. All I know is that you're showing me a picture of Kate Upton. That, like, that's 100% of all I know. I don't feel very aware of the Twitter ads, but it does feel the same way. Of These, these seem like TV ads on Seinfeld or something where they're just hitting as broad of an audience as possible yeah and so it's it's not intensely relevant to anybody it is mildly interesting to a huge group of people that's that's maybe the way they feel so they don't even stick in my mind i can't i can't think of anything that was an ad that caught my attention on twitter 
and plus like you know you're effectively make, trying to make a choice as to what platform what apps are you going to use that has under development on one platform like twitter don't seem to not care about their mac app right um, right and they also don't really seem to put a lot of effort into their ipad app but at least on tweetbot i get a really good iphone app and a really good mac app and the right. ipad is just in limbo okay gray mm-hmm. kirk or picard This episode of Cortex is also brought to you by Igloo, the intranet you'll actually like. With Igloo, you no longer have to be chained to your desk to get your work done. With Igloo, you're able to manage your task list, your documents, anything that you need in your intranet from wherever you want to work. Maybe you could do this during a meeting on a laptop just to make sure you keep them up to date while somebody is talking about something boring. Maybe you want to share status updates with your colleagues about the great lunch that you've had at that client's site. You can do this from your phone as you're walking out the door, and you can even access the latest version of all your files from home, which you can also do in your pajamas, and nobody will ever know. These days, everything is mobile, your work should be too, and Igloo understand this. What they also understand is with our mobile lives, people are spreading documents across different platforms that they use. Maybe you use Box or Google Drive or Dropbox, and people are spreading their sensitive documents that should be all contained within the business. They can be everywhere. This isn't great. So Igloo allows you to integrate all of these services into their one big, easy-to-secure platform. They feature 256-bit encryption, single sign-on, and active directory integrations. A lot of that stuff doesn't make sense to me, but I know that it means that Igloo is a super secure platform, and your IT person is going to love to know that. If you ever looked at your internet and thought, whoever designed this must truly hate me and everything I know and stand for, well, those days are over. Igloo doesn't look like it was built in the 1900s. It can be completely customized to feel exactly like a place that you want to be. It's surprisingly configurable. You can completely rebrand it, give it the look and feel of your team, and you can also customize group spaces with their easy drag and drop widget editor so you can organize and reorganize the whole platform to fit exactly how each of the teams work in your company. It's time to break away from the internet you hate. Go and sign up for Igloo right now and you can try it for free for any team of up to 10 people for as long as you want. Sign up right now at igloosoftware.com slash cortex. This will also really help support this show. Thank you to Igloo for sponsoring this week's episode and for helping us out at Relay FM. Oh, the classic nerd question, Kirk or Picard. <laughs> Well, first of all, how much how much Star Trek have you ever watched, Mike? <laughs> Absolutely zero. <laughs> I've seen. <laughs> I had a feeling that might be the answer. I've seen the new movies, and I like them. New from two thousand seven, the yeah. ones with the like the rebooted Star Trek. The, okay, the rebooted ones, and I really like mm-hmm. those. And I know I know enough about the important parts of Star Trek, right? Like I know who Kirk and Picard are. Mm-hmm. Like, I know who they're played by. Like, mm-hmm. but and I've seen some episodes of Next Generation when they were just on TV, but mm-hmm. I have never been much of a Star Trek guy at all. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything against it, um, but I've just never spent any time of it. Yeah. Um. So I answered this question on one of my videos a while back, and I gave the answer, which if if I have to choose between Kirk or Picard, I generally like Picard better. But since I made those videos, those new Star Trek movies, I, I have realized that there are two Kirks now, which is unique in the Star Trek universe. And I think that the new Kirk is very interesting in a way that the old Kirk I just found ridiculous. I may be too young to appreciate the Star Trek original series, but the episodes that I have seen, I, I find them 
I find them difficult to enjoy. They ju- they're just too corny, or I don't know. I, I, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of them. So if I'm if I'm choosing between Kirk and Picard, I think it's a more interesting question now. I think the new Star Trek reboots are very good. I really like them, but uh, I'm still going to choose Picard as like the better Star Trek captain. I, I like him better. But the, the, it's always Kirk or Picard. But I I really like Janeway. I'm I am biased towards Janeway because I have seen more Voyager than anything else my wife is a big voyager fan and voyager was on when i was in high school and i had some friends who were super into star trek and so we would watch the new episodes of voyager at their house when they came out i think the character of captain janeway has more interesting things going for her in some ways i like the situation that janeway is in way better that she's stranded out in deep space she doesn't have the fleet behind her and she has to make these difficult decisions. So I, I'm I'm a big fan of Janeway. I, I, I like her a lot as a captain, even though I think as we've discussed, there are many things about Star Trek that frustrate me. Uh, there are many things that I would want to change and that it's horrifically inconsistent. I'll drop a little nerd trivia here that you won't care about at all because you don't know any of these things, but um, <laughs> so you laugh in the background there? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Uh, Behind the scenes at Voyager, there was a big disagreement between the writers about what Captain Janeway's character should be. And they they split into two groups, which were basically Captain Mom versus the Iron Lady. So should her character be very mothering or should she be just this really cold-hearted person who makes these decisions and never looks back? And the writing team was was split on this. And so the result is that in many episodes of Star Trek, Janeway acts in these wildly inconsistent ways from episode to episode. (laughs) And if you've seen Voyager as much as I have, you notice this. Like, wait a minute. This is a totally different person than three episodes ago. Like, oh, now she's really caring. But, you know, she was was willing to discard things earlier. You know, so anyway, so it's just wildly inconsistent. But what I love is that the actress Kate Mulgrew said that this was driving her crazy. And she decided that, the way to make this work is to simply play the character as though she has shell shock, right? As though she's going through PTSD. And this is the only thing that can make this character work is, is that, that the situation that she has been in is so traumatic that she has PTSD. And so she reacts very badly under some circumstances and perfectly fine under others. So I thought that was, that was a, a great little mo a great little moment from uh, like, if you're an actress handed this difficult situation, how to figure out to make this into something coherent. And uh, the only other minor thing that I will say is that in our household, my wife and I, we give out to actors and actresses what we call the Janeway Award, which is when we see someone on film sell a completely ridiculous line because... Kate Mulgrew had to say some of the worst, most convoluted lines in Star Trek Voyager, but she was able to sell them sometimes in just this amazing way where it's like, I totally buy this ridiculous dialogue. And this came from one of the early episodes where Captain Janeway is talking to Amelia Earhart on a planet out in the Delta Quadrant and is trying to explain to Amelia Earhart the situation. 
And the actress Kate Mulgrew has to look at Amelia Earhart and say with complete seriousness, you have been abducted by aliens. And it's just like, it's just the worst ever, but she sells it. And so when we see someone accomplish that, we say, that person has just won a Janeway Award. This is like a selling a ridiculous line of dialogue. So anyway, that's my, uh, that's my situation with Star Trek. That compromise that those writers came to is one of the worst decisions possible. We'll just write it differently than you will. Like that is just the worst way of dealing with that situation. Yeah, and the the interesting thing is that this this big split is actually what eventually led to Battlestar Galactica because it was the writing team that was on the side oh. of Iron Lady that eventually produced Battlestar Galactica as very much a reaction to their experience putting together Voyager. And if you're watching Battlestar Galactica knowing that, you can see this in the couple of, of female lead characters, that they are both way more like the ruthless decision makers than they than they could have ever made Janeway be on Star Trek Voyager. So probably it kind of basically ended up being best for everyone because you got Battlestar out of it. Yeah, Battlestar Galactica is 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 pretty good. And when I watch Voyager, I'm I'm always feeling like it could use twenty percent more Battlestar Galactica. That's that's what Voyager needs. Let's turn down the happiness ten percent and turn up the Galactica twenty percent. So I want to ask you a couple of questions that are focused around something that is near and dear to my heart. Okay. Which is paper and pens. Uh-huh. Um People may not know this about me, but I actually host a podcast, co-host a podcast about pens and paper on Relay FM. Mm-hmm. Um, and Walker has written in to say, how does Mike feel about Gray's shred everything shreddable policy with regards to notebooks and things like Field Notes, for, for example? Field Notes is a brand of notebook that I love. So mm-hmm. I, I notice about you that you enjoy shredding things. Well, I enjoy shredding useless things. Yeah, see, this is this was my my thought too i also believe in shredding everything except mm-hmm. the stuff that i want to keep mm-hmm. which seems very like a very simple like argument there like oh well yeah but it makes sense to me again and one thing with my notebooks once i'm done in them they never get opened again mm-hmm. because they're done um and i have had the habit in the past of scanning them Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really, I don't really do that anymore. That used to be more when I used to take notes that were more critical for my job. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I would scan them in case I ever needed to get back to them again. But um, it doesn't bother me. Like I, I don't shred my notebooks. Um, I just put them in storage. But I could quite easily see a world in which I did that. It wouldn't really bother me too much. Right, because you're never accessing them in storage anyway. It's like they have been shredded. Exactly, they just happen to still physically exist. Yeah, I keep them just just because. Yeah, I have a few things like that as well. In my pre-iPhone days, I used to write in notebooks. And I still have a bunch of notebooks that are just filled with handwritten things. And I have them around. They're actually at my, my parents' house where I am right now. And I've scanned some of them. And yeah, they're still, they're here, you know, just because I haven't shredded them. But I never look at them either. So. Of all of the questions that we've received, the one, the way in which this one is phrased, I love the most of all. Okay. So this is from Leblobs. When writing with the primitive pen and paper, do you write in cursive or in normal romanized text? I just really love that 
going into this, the bias, like, it's primitive. (laughs) Mm. Well, we all know that we accept this to be true, right? That pen and paper is primitive, which I do not Mm. agree with. um, Because pen and paper, as I know that Gray employs, is really great for some tasks. Like, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely is. You can't, you cannot, like, well, I I know that I cannot, and I know many people are the same as me. the, the, The thinking process that occurs during using your hands to write is very, very different to the one that you go through when you're using a computer. And sometimes it's what you really need to get through something is to be able to grab a pen and paper and go for it. Mm -hmm. Oh, without a doubt. And this is where I do print out my scripts and I work on them by hand because it's just different. Your brain just treats it differently. And I'm able to often cut through problems in scripts when I'm working with them on a piece of paper with a pen in a way that I am not when I'm working on my iPad. So it is definitely useful. Um, To answer the question, when I am working on my scripts, so something that is going to be for video, I make all of the corrections in cursive. If I'm writing anything that is not a script, I'm writing it just in regular print. I don't know why my brain has decided that this is the way it's going to be, but that's... That is just the way that it is. Everything else that I write is print, but if I'm working on a script, it for some reason, it's cursive time. And that's that's the way I write. Whilst I don't have a distinction, or my brain isn't making a distinction as strong as yours, I do vary wildly between block capitals, print, mm-hmm. and <laughs> cursive or joined up handwriting, <laughs> as mm-hmm. I would know it to be called here. Uh, and I don't know why this happens, but sometimes halfway through a sentence... I change from cursive to script. That must be great for anybody who has to read the things that you write. Not many people have to read what I write, but my handwriting... Mm. That sounds good then. Yeah, so it works Mm. out for everyone. (laughs) It's my own (laughs) special brand of code. All right, I have a couple more for you. Nicholas would like to know uh, how precise you are with scripts. Like, for example, do you write the word so, or do you put, like, long pause or anything like that in your scripts? The scripts are word for word when I write them out. So in anything, any non-word thing is written. And I do make notes about pauses or sounds. And I use a lot of, of italics as well for what word do I want to emphasize in this sentence. But that's partly because when I'm going through the scripts, one of the phases is to read them out loud as though I am doing the video. And part of that is trying to find the rhythm of the sentences. So I do have to make notes about, yes, this word is going to be the word that is emphasized. And I want to pause at this moment for a second or two. If I was writing something just for an article in a a website or something, I would still read it out loud because I do think that that helps when you're writing. But I uh, I wouldn't feel the need to make a whole bunch of notes about, or I wouldn't feel the need to include italics in the way that I, I currently do but yeah that's why that stuff is in there because i'm trying to find the way that sounds best when i'm saying it out loud that's really cool i didn't know that i like that that's that's a, a, a real level of detail that i enjoy that now that i know that fact pauses i understand a little bit more but like emphasizing certain words choosing that in advance is very interesting I like yeah that. if that's people cool. look at um if people turn on the the captions for my videos, not so much with the newer ones, but with a lot of the older ones, I would just upload the captions 
as the script that I had written and very often just didn't bother taking out some of the um, some of the italics or a few other things. I would take out, if I, if I wrote something like that was a pause or a little note to myself, I would take that out because I'm obviously not saying it. But on the older videos, you can watch them with the captions on and you'll see the little asterisks around a whole bunch of words, which were like, yes, I decided that this was a word that I was going to emphasize in the sentence. So that stuff is still there, sort of, in, in some of the older videos. Do you use any kind of script writing software or do you use any kind of script writing markup or do you just have your own little codes and symbols that you use? I'm pretty much using Markdown. That's okay. what I'm using. I want to talk about Markdown one day with you. Yeah. Yeah, there, we, can, we can talk more in detail about that. But the short answer is, yeah, I'm, used, I'm just using Markdown, which is why I put asterisks around okay. the words to mark that it's italics. So my last question today for you comes from Bobby. And Bobby would like to know, what advice would you give to somebody who's looking to become self-employed in a similar fashion to how you are? We sort of touched on this earlier, actually. So this is a, this is a good bringing things around to the beginning question. I employed a very deliberate strategy when I was trying to become self-employed. And that was to try a bunch of different little projects on the side. So I, I always had something else that I was doing in addition to my actual main job. And so uh, for a while when I was teaching, I woke up very early in the morning and I always dedicated my first hour or two of wakefulness, which is my prime useful time, to my side project. So I thought, I'm not giving my first couple of hours of wakefulness to my employer. I'm going to give them to me to work on things. And I think you have to think about becoming self-employed. I always think of it as a bit like, this is the worst analogy ever. But in my mind, I'm always imagining like a roulette table and what you want to do is you want to place a bunch of small bets all over the table. You don't want to go all in on a single thing mm. because you, you want to be doing a little experiments to see what, what do people want to do? And I went through this with a bunch of stuff that just didn't work out where, like I said, like we said before, I was trying to think of services to sell or other things to do. And I had things that were successful, but never successful enough to fully employ myself. And that's a useful piece of information to have. Or I just had stuff that just totally didn't work. And so you have to just try a bunch of little things and cut the stuff that isn't working. And that and that's this is exactly why I have ended up in a career that I did not aim for. I wasn't planning for this. I never could have planned for this. But making the videos were little side projects that I thought would be popular in some way. I didn't just make them because I thought, oh, you know, this will be a fun thing to do. They were a very purposeless experiment that I still thought people might like. And I was originally thinking maybe any attention that I get from these videos, I can parlay that into something else, right? Then people just know I exist and then maybe I can sell goods or services or do something else or do consulting or whatever. So, so that's what I think is the best thing to do. Try a whole bunch of little things and try to figure out very quickly what people are interested in and what people aren't interested in. 
But if you do that, you may end up doing something that is just that you're not planning for. You're just trying to figure out what people are interested in. And I have read a few books that match up with this advice from people who are also successful. The one that I usually recommend to, say, people who are just graduating is So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport, which I really like. And um, the guy who writes Dilbert actually just wrote a book called, uh, I think it's called like How to Fail at Everything and Still Succeed. And (laughs) yeah, it was... He's a very strange guy. He's a very strange guy. Um, but reading through that book, I could see he had the exact same experience that I did. Of He didn't really care what it was that he was going to do. He was just w- willing to try a whole bunch of little things and just go with what works and what doesn't. And for him, the cartooning was exactly one of these side projects. And even the beginning of Dilbert was very different than what he was thinking it would be. Like, I forget the I forget the exact details, but it was originally going to be all about Dilbert's home life. And he quickly realized that the cartoons that got the most reaction from people were about Dilbert's job. And so he changed the direction of the whole comic to be entirely about work. And, you know, now this is what he does for a living. So that's that is my overall advice and and potentially two books to read. Do you have anything you want to add to that, Mike? Yeah, <laughs> I I have a very, very, very different opinion to you. Uh huh. <laughs> well, um, well, you had a dream job you were aiming for. There you go. So that's so that this is the idea. We're both coming at this from very very different avenues. Um, because I remember when I when I quit my job and I was telling people in the office that I was leaving. A lot of the time, I would have people say to me, "Oh, I'd love to have my own business," mm-hmm. but they never had a business doing X. It was just, mm-hmm. "I'd love to have my own business," and I was like, "I don't understand how that can be a goal." That you have mm-hmm. if you don't have any idea what you want to do so mm-hmm. you can't just have oh my business does business so can you give me some money like that's not how right. things work so i always found that like really the haha weird. business meme yeah <laughs> business what are you doing today oh just so much business like <laughs> yeah. it doesn't exist you have to have an idea um mm-hmm. so my my thing my advice is once you found the thing that you really want to do you've got to get ready to sacrifice a whole bunch of stuff that other people might not want to sacrifice. And mm. if you can manage to do that, then you'll succeed. Because I genuinely believe the reason that a lot of people don't is because they don't want to sacrifice. And that is not a criticism. Because some of the things you have to sacrifice are things that you just don't want to. Like, I didn't and kind of still really don't have a social life. Like, I didn't have a social life for years because every mm-hmm. night... I would come home and start my second job. So, mm-hmm. and like, luckily now I know a bunch of self-employed people, so I can meet for lunches and stuff like that. Um, but I gave up that. I gave up the ability to really sleep, right? Because mm-hmm. I would go to bed late because I was working on a project and wake up really early in the morning because I was working on a project. And I lost a lot of friendships and relationships. And these are things that I'm not saying are good, because they're not good, which is why a lot of people can't do them. But I think sometimes if the thing that you want to do, and this is this applies way more to I want to achieve my dream than I want to be self-employed. But mm. if you do have a dream job that you want to do, sometimes the only way to get there is to go through some really tough decisions and to give up a lot of stuff. Yeah, that that is that is definitely the case. And uh one of the things that someone might get the impression from listening to our previous episodes that you also have to give up is is if you're trying to do something outside your main job, it means that you have to make 
sacrifices at your main job, which I, I think it might be clear that maybe we weren't the best employees we could have possibly been at the places we were working. And even that is a, a like it's it's a stress that is difficult for some people to handle. And so yes, there. If you are trying to do anything on your own, you totally have trade-offs. There are there are things that you have to sacrifice. But I mean that this is true with anything in life, right? All of life is about making decisions and cutting off options. But it's just that if you're going for working on your own or being self-employed, it's a big decision with a big impact. So it also has big trade-offs that you have to face. But yeah, it's interesting hearing you say that, Mike, because my my goal was, of course, exactly like I want to be self-employed in the same way that people want to have a business. What do you want to be self-employed at? I don't know. Self-employment like this is this was the goal that I was aiming for. And I was not particularly concerned with what the details of, of that were. Yeah, that was just always so weird to me. <laughs> but as I said, we were coming at it from very different perspectives. I did really, really not want to have to work for someone, but mm-hmm. more importantly to me was to do the thing that I really, really want to do. Mm-hmm. So maybe if mm-hmm. this didn't work out, or maybe if it ends up not working out, I will end <laughs> There's up in always that mode. time. <laughs> because now it's like now I really have to be self-employed. So maybe I will just do anything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, once you. Once you become self-employed, I mean, I've heard many people joke about it, but it's totally true. If you become self-employed, the danger is that you are now pretty much unemployable to anyone in the future. It's just like you just wouldn't do very well in a, in a regular job once you've been self-employed, which adds to the pressure of like you have to remain successful because otherwise you're in a lot of trouble. Oh, yeah, I would I was never a great employee because I always had something I wanted to do, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was never fully focused. But now y- it would be just horrible for everyone involved. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're skipping an episode next week. We're not going to be around because of your uh, travel schedule. Um, and yeah. the fact that wa- we can blame, basically we can blame Washington for this, right? Eh, the episode next week, you can just blame that on me because of the difficulties of trying to schedule and make sure that we have a have an episode and my refusal to believe in the schedule, which I'm now forcing on you. But uh, yeah, I'm not around to work as much as I would normally be. So there's not going to be an episode next week. Unless I do one on my own. Bye, Gray. <laughs> <laughs>